Well, Lord in heaven, we thank you for a chance to rise early and open up your word. And Father, to gather with other men, to learn uh, from them, to learn what it is that um, you would have for us uh, to take away today and to apply to our lives. I pray, Father, that um, you would capture our hearts, that you'd wake us from our slumber, our apathy, that you would, um, would give us just the eyes to see how you have blessed us and um, the true uh, meaning of the gospel. And, um, and Father, give us a sense, Lord, for how you would have us respond today. Father, whether it's in gratitude or repentance um, or obedience, Lord, show us the areas in our life where we need to take ground and, um, and knock off the rough, rough edges. We love you, Lord, and we give this time to you. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I just got back from a great time in Disney World with my four kids. And um, I'm a little tired, I'll be honest with you. But uh, a week in Disney World uh, is, is, is a dream world for four little kids. And I've actually been there a couple times as a kid, now a couple of times having taken in my children. And um, what always amazes me is every time I go, um, I, I'm amazed by the many things that I missed the previous times I went. I would go to the park and do the best I can to ride every ride, see all the main attractions. But then I recognize each time I go, I've never seen that before. Um, and then only to be told later on by those who work there uh, just about this elaborate underground tunnel system and restaurants underneath and just the way in which they manage and run Magic Kingdom. It's, it's amazing. And truly, every time you go, there's more to see. And as we open up the book of John, again, it's it's one of those things where... As many times as I've studied the book of John, I open it up, I read some of the most familiar passages that I've read many and studied many times before, only to learn new things, only to be reminded of great truths. And as you know, this coincides with Todd starting the book of John on Sunday mornings here. And uh, so what I want to do is, obviously we've studied John 1 and 2 um, over this course this past week, and what I specifically want to do this morning is I want to look at the prologue. I want to look at John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Um, one man said the prologue is a foyer to the rest of the fourth gospel. In other words, it's here, it's, it, the, the prologue, these just first 18 verses is the acorn, if you will, from which everything else takes root. And we're going to see uh, from verses 1 through 18, that there are repeated themes, th- repeated words, um, and other ideas that are mentioned in just these uh, brief 18 verses that are going to be later developed throughout the book. Let me show you what I mean by that. If you look at um, the themes of the prologue, you'll see the uh, pre-existence of the Son is discussed in chapter 1, verses 1 and, 1 and 2, but then later developed in chapter 17, verse 5. The idea that in Christ was life is later then developed in chapter 5, verse 26. That that light is rejected by darkness. Light coming into the world. That Christ was not received by his own. In verse 11 of chapter 1, later developed in in chapter 4. That we're born to God and not of flesh. Verse 13. And then later developed in chapter 3 and in chapter 8. Chapter 1 makes mention of seeing the Lord's glory, later developed in chapter 12. And on and on it goes, the one and only Son, 
that truth is found in Christ and Him alone, that no one has seen God except the one who comes from God's side. All these ideas which are mentioned here in just these short 18 verses are later um, picked up on and developed in, in, other, cha- in uh, other chapters of the book. Key words that are repeated from the prologue are foundational throughout the book. Words like life, light, and darkness. Believe. So believe is written um, in John 98 times. That word reappears over and over and over and over again. It's almost as if the Lord's trying to capture our attention, right? And to hit us over the head with what the purpose is of the book of John. That he represents Jesus as the Savior of the world. That we are um, called to make a decision about what we believe about Jesus. And so he repeats the word over and over again. The word witness. The word true or truth. World. Glory. Truth. These are ideas. These are words that, are, that we find here in just the first 18 verses later developed throughout the book. You even see in verses 11 and 12 what some people see is a short outline of the book. In verse 11, we read that he came to his own. Jesus came to his own people. He came as the Messiah. He came to those who um, anticipated the Messiah to be born, the Jewish people, Israel. And those who were his own did not receive him. Despite all the prophecies about him, despite how all of his miracles and how his life and how his ministry, everything was fulfilled, all that the Old Testament prophets said um, he would be and who he is, and, and yet they did not receive him. And you see in the first half of the gospel, chapters 1 through 12, which is described by many as the book of signs, which I'll tell you why here in just a second, describes the rejection of Jesus by the Jews. And the reason why the first 12 chapters are described as the book of signs is because you see over and over again the word signs and how the people are looking for a sign. Prove it, Jesus. Prove that you say you are. uh, prove, Prove it that you are who you say you are. Show us a sign. And so you see it in the beginning in, in John chapter 2, where Jesus turns the water into wine. And we read in John 2, verse 11, it says, This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. That idea of belief again. In chapter 2, verse 23, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name, beholding his signs, which he was doing. In chapter 4, verse 54, it speaks of when he heals the nobleman's son, and how that was a sign for the people to believe in Christ. When 5,000 people are fed with the fish and the loaves, it was recorded as a sign, so that Israel, so that the people would come to believe in Christ. So this is the book of signs. But yet, despite all these signs, the people rejected Christ. And then in verse 12 it reads, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believed in his name. Does that verse sound familiar? Hopefully it does, otherwise you might be found a little embarrassed this morning, right? Because that's our memory verse, but that's the second half of the outline of the book. Because in 13 through 21, the book of glory, what we see here, is this is written to those who did receive him. So the prologue is pregnant with meaning, pregnant with truth. It it is the acorn, if you will, from which the rest of the book springs. And what I want to do is, I just want to spend a little time in verses 12 and 13. And take a look at that with me, if you would. It says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. 
who were born not of blood, nor the will of God, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Now, there's four things here that I, I want to point out to you just based on these, these two verses. And, and the first is, starts with that first phrase there, but as many as received him. Okay, we have a choice. We have a choice to make as to how we are going to respond to the gospel through Jesus Christ. And we are held accountable for the choice that we make. Each of us have to make a decision. And a right relationship with the Lord, as you've heard many times up here on the stage, doesn't come by what you do or don't do. It is all in who you trust. In what you believe about Jesus Christ, who he is, and what he was doing on the cross. The familiar verse which we've already memorized, which states that we are saved by grace through faith. And it's not of ourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works that no man may boast. We have a decision to make. And how we're going to respond. And we'll ha- we are held accountable for how we respond to Jesus' offer of salvation. The second thing we see here is, is that to them, to those who did receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Those who receive Jesus are given a change in status. No longer are we considered enemies of God, as Ephesians 2 describes us. We're not neutral. We're not friends of God. We're enemies of God. As Ephesians 2 and Romans 3 describe this. But when we make that decision, when we place our trust in Jesus Christ, we move from being enemies to being children of God, part of his community of faith, a family. But as many as received them, to them he gave the right to become children of God. No longer meant to live in isolation, but to live in community and in fellowship with one another. It goes on to say, even to those who believe in his name. It's important to point out that to believe in his name is not merely intellectual assent. It's not merely just understating facts about God, winning Bible trivia. But it's to trust in who Jesus is and what he's done for us. James chapter 2 verse 19 speaks of how even the demons of hell believe in God and yet they shudder. It's one thing to believe that God exists. It's another thing to believe and trust in Jesus Christ as your one and only Savior and to place your faith in Him. And that He's your only means of salvation. But as many as, um, but as, many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. Who were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Verse 13 points out that salvation is not, uh, I mean, salvation is a work of God, and not a result of our heritage, parents' beliefs, or personal efforts. Salvation, according to verse 13, is a work of God, that God's the one who changes our hearts. It's not a result of the fact of what family we were born into, whether we're Jew or not, Gentile, the reputation of our parents, our parents' belief, their faith. Their good works. It's not a result of our own personal efforts, our morals, what we've chosen to do or not do. It's a work of God. Now, for those of you who are paying attention, you may be sitting there going, man, wait a minute, didn't I hear you just say a second ago that we're held responsible for the choice that we make regarding Christ? But yet, now you're saying, hey, wait a minute, salvation is a work of God. 
But it's nothing we do. It's up to God to change our hearts. And the answer is, yes. You see, in John 1, 12 and 13, if you notice, there's a tension here. And what so many people do whenever there is a tension in Scripture, because we want to figure things out, is we want to unravel that tension. We want to untie that so that it makes sense in our mind. When Scripture doesn't allow us to do that, let me show you what I mean. In verse 11, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. You see here man's responsibility to respond to the gospel. Don't you? That there's a call for you to respond. A call for you to receive him as your one and only Savior. But you also see in verse 13, God's sovereignty, who were born not of uh, blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but born of God. And so if you're paying attention, it just kind of makes you sit there and go, wow, is this, is this contradict one another? What do I do with this? I see man's responsibility, I see God's sovereignty, and to which I would say, yes. Yes, you do. And so it's a little bit like tug of war, right? I was going to get a couple of you guys up here, right? Pull on this thing for me. And what, what, but what ends up happening here in tug of war is if we pull all the way over here because we're emphasizing, hey, it's man's responsibility, man's responsibility, and we watch that rope come over here, we'll find ourselves in theological error. We'll find ourselves drawing conclusions that the, that the Bible just simply doesn't make. But then there's a whole other side of the debate, which is God's sovereignty. Right? And we're pulling over here and we're pulling over here and we're pulling over here. And when we do that and we don't keep it in tension, when we don't keep that middle ground, right, and we neglect man's responsibility, then what happens is, is we make theological errors. We make mistakes. And it leads us into to beliefs and ideas which are contrary to the truth of Scripture. And gang, so often in times, Scripture teaches truths that seem to contradict one another. But God would have us hold it in tension. You see this with uh, the person of Christ. Is Jesus fully God? Yes. Is he fully man? Yes. And when you say he's more God than man, you're going to be in trouble. When you say he's more man than God, you're going to be in trouble. The kingdom of God, it's already here, but it's not yet here. Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand. But he also spoke of a future of the kingdom of God. There's a tension there. And the same thing we see here. And let me show you how this plays out. When we overemphasize man's responsibility, we undermine the sovereignty of God. Number two, it leads to an unhealthy sense of pride when we overemphasize the responsibility of man. It's as if we figured this out. We knew how to respond to Jesus. And all the other folks out there couldn't figure it out. When in fact the Bible says, it's God who changes our heart. When we overemphasize man's responsibility and pull that away, it affects our understanding of evangelism. And we either take too much credit when people respond, or we take too much of the blame when they don't. It promotes a works-based theology. And it causes us to not fully appreciate what the Lord has done for us. You see that? Those who pull hard this way, though, and neglect man's responsibility and go, no, no, it's God's sovereignty. It's God's sovereignty. 
Well, they typically undermine the responsibility of man. It lessens our motivation for evangelism. We have this idea, well, you know, God will take care of it. He's sovereign. Well, no, no, no. He's called you to be a part of how he's going to change the hearts of men. And he wants you to play a role in it. Not to shrink back from your responsibilities. It leads to the unbiblical idea of double predestination. The Bible never teaches that God chooses some, but then he chooses others to go to hell. It just simply says that God is the one who ultimately changes our hearts, but it is always, always man's responsibility for how they respond to that gospel call. And it promotes the idea of licentiousness. We, we emphasize God's sovereignty to so much, to such a degree, it can lead to the conclusion, you know, I can just do whatever I want. You know, God's sovereign, I'm saved, I'm good. And those who, who pull hard on this side, man's responsibility, they're often looking at the people on that side going, well, you're just going to promote licentiousness. And Scripture here, gang, what it does is it teaches that there is a tension. And it's okay to live with that tension. And where that tension, where man's responsibility and God's sovereignty, where they meet in this knot in the middle, there's mystery. There's mystery. And it's okay to have mystery. It's okay um, to have tension. When we even look at the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, guess what? There's mystery. There's tension. And what I'm telling you is, is that's okay. But in that mystery and in that tension, don't get so uncomfortable that you try to unravel it and then you find yourself pulling this way. Or find yourself pulling the other way. So what does all this mean and what application can we take from this? In light of man's responsibility, let me ask you just a couple of questions. Have you personally responded to Jesus' offer of forgiveness? You know, last year in my summit group, I had a group of all new guys, guys I didn't know. And uh, one of the guys in my group, <clears throat> his friend invited him to come, and I tracked, we just tracked with him, and he spent time within our group, and uh, week after week was faithful to come. And it wasn't until the end of summit, we went up to go grab lunch together. Um, I knew he had questions all along. And at the end of the summit, we just sat there over, over lunch and shared with him once again the gospel. And once again, his responsibility to respond to that call and that gift of salvation that God was extending to him through Christ. And it was that day he, he goes, man, you know what? I've heard it, but I've never heard it until now. And gang, I know there's folks in here who have you've been in Summit for a while. Maybe this is your second or third time. And I'm asking, have you personally responded to who Christ is and what he's done for you on the cross. Because you're held accountable for your response. Secondly, are you relying on anything? Family background, personal morals, other than the sacrifice of Christ for your salvation. Is there any sense of you that goes, well, you know, I'm a pretty good person. You know, I do more good than bad. Compared to that guy over there, yeah, I'm all right. Well, that's not the measuring stick by which we know we can have a right relationship with the Lord. It doesn't matter if we grew up in church. It doesn't matter about the, the faith of our parents. It's about our personal decision of who Jesus is and what he's done for us.
In light of man's responsibility, when was the last time you had a significant conversation with someone who is far from God? This is a, a question that we ask often amongst ourselves as a staff on Tuesday mornings when we, when we gather to pray. And it's always such a great question. It's a question that just reminds me that, you know what? It is my privilege, and I have the opportunity every day to have a significant conversation with someone who is far from God, because they are responsible. And God chooses to use each one of us to play a part in helping others know about the gift of salvation through Christ. And He intends to use you in His sovereignty to deliver His message so that person will respond. In light of God's sovereignty, two questions. Whose salvation are you continually entrusting to the Lord through prayer? Yes, it's true that man is responsible, but it's also true that God's sovereign. And it's up to God to change the hearts of man. So who is it that you are continually, whose name are you continually taking to the Lord, saying, Lord, please change their heart. Please put me in a position um, in such that I can have a conversation, that I can have the right words to speak, because, Lord, ultimately I know you're the one who's going to change that man's heart. Lord, do a work in their heart. Who are you lifting up before the Lord, trusting in his sovereignty to do a great work? And finally, how does your life reflect your appreciation for what the Lord has done for you through Christ? I mean, Cain, yes, you're responsible, but do you understand? You didn't figure it out. God has chosen to bless you. God has chosen to call you no longer an enemy, but a friend, one of his children. He's put you in a community of believers. He has blessed you beyond measure, giving you everything you need for life and godliness, as Peter says. And do we live our lives with humility and gratitude, with an awareness of what he's done for us? Or do we walk with pride, thinking that we're the ones that have figured this out, and then it's about us? King John 1, John 1 is the acorn, it's the, the foyer, Right? by which the rest of this book is built. Don't run fast. Don't run through this fast. But soak it in. Grab a pen, right? Open a a book. Learn. Wrestle with these truths. Just because they're difficult, just because there's tension, don't go, ah, I can never understand that. Jump in. Ask questions. Take advantage of this time that we have here. Come on Sundays. Hear what Todd's saying as he goes to the book of John. And let's learn this together. And let's avoid, when we see things, arguments on both sides, getting frustrated and just kind of, if we stand on this side, you know, discounting readily those on this side. But let's listen. Let's learn. Let's equip ourselves to know God's Word. So that not only can we respond appropriately in our own lives and how we apply it, but that we can teach others accurately. Let's pray. Well, Lord in heaven, I thank you for uh, the book of John. I thank you, Father, for how exciting it is, Lord, to just to learn more about our Savior. And Father, I pray for those, Lord, who are here this morning who, who um, need to wrestle with 
of the calls of the gospel. They need to wrestle with who they are um, and what it is that you're offering to them through Christ is forgiveness and hope and reconciliation. And I pray each man would do that today. And I pray, Father, for those of us who have responded, that we would walk humbly, that, Father, we would recognize, Lord, that, that you ultimately are the one who changes man's hearts. And that now we have the great privilege and opportunity to go and share with others so that they can make a decision. And Father, for those of us who are laboring, laboring, and coming before you continually, pleading, Lord, that you would change the hearts of a loved one or neighbor or friend, I pray, Lord, that we would not grow weary. And that, Father, we would persist in our requests, knowing, Lord, that ultimately you are in control. And we can rest in that. And so, Father, we marvel at your grace and your mercy in our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.